All right. And uh, I wanted to welcome Kat Sass to the podcast. Welcome, Kat. How's it going? It's going pretty well, um, all things considering. Thank you for having me. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Like, uh, I've been I've been having a lot of trouble. I don't know about you, but like getting motivated to do fun stuff and, and things that I used to enjoy doing back in the old days. Um, it's just been hard. And so I thought it would be really nice to get back into talking about Philip Pullman and fantasy and all that good stuff. Um, and so thanks for joining me. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's been the same for me. I think yeah. it, we have a fantasy of a, of a quarantine of, I'm going to read all the books I haven't read. And it's just like the world is, is such, you know, a strange and terrifying place at the moment that it, it can be hard to concentrate. So I definitely, I feel you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a good, I mean, I think a good uh, time to read these kind of books though, right? These fantasies that have a little bit more of a, of a mature or darker tone to them. Um, and uh, I invited you to, to join me because I read your paper on um, Rowling and her darker perspective, uh, as you call it. And I thought maybe, well, I wanted first to just get kind of an introduction, you know, um, how, how did you get drawn to this sort of stuff, these topics? And then we could maybe talk a little bit about some of what you uh, were, were writing about in that paper. So, start. Sure. Um, yeah. So um, for anyone who doesn't know me, which some of, if, if you have listeners who are connected to Signum University and yeah. Midgard, they might. Um, but for anybody who doesn't, um, I'm the volunteer academic coordinator for Signum. So I, I did my master's degree there a few, finished a few years ago and have stayed on um, on started kind of as a work study and then kept on in, on a volunteer basis coordinating their master's program um, in language and literature. Um, so yeah, for anybody listening who doesn't know about that, check it out because there's uh, credit courses and audit courses um, in, in fantasy and sci-fi and it's pretty cool. Um, my day job is um, in uh, academic administration as well. Um, I work at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so I started there as an academic coordinator, which sort of was the skill set that I brought over to Signum, um, and now I'm doing communications. Um, so, um, so yes, I'm not a professional academic or scholar by any stretch. It's you know something I've done sort of um, on an amateur and you know fan basis, um, and sort of for myself, just for kind of personal um, enrichment and things like that, um, and. How did I get into this stuff? Um, I mean, I think that I grew into it a little bit. I definitely, there were, um, I was always a reader, um, always loved um, reading, but just stories in general. I was always, um, had a lot of time and attention for um, movies and um, theater and everything as well as books. So kind of anything with stories was sort of, always what I was glomming onto um, in lieu of anything else. And I don't, I think it wasn't until maybe middle and high school that I started to kind of realize, um, kind of like I think Lewis and Tolkien both said similar things of that when they were younger, they read fairy tales, but not exclusively, they read other things as well. And it's sort of more in maturity that they kind of realized that that was their preferred mode of story and entertainment. And I had a kind of similar experience where um, I loved the Narnia books. Um, 
I loved um, Madeline Langle. Um, there was definitely, um, you know, I was huge into, um, you know, classic fairy tales and, and, you know, Disney movies and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't exclusive. I was, you know, there's a new Babysitter's Club show coming out soon. I was also hugely into that. And American Girl books and um, other more realistic classic novels about, you know, American young adult stories and things like that. Um, and then, um, I mean, the real, the Lord of the Rings, the films coming out when I was 15 at the perfect age was sort of the, the big watershed. Um, I think the precursor to that, that kind of primed me for it was probably Watership Down. Mm -hmm. um, reading that when I was 12 and that instantly became the best thing I'd ever encountered. So I think that, I think more than anything, that kind of like, tilled the earth that then like you know the lord of the rings came and you know kind of planted all the seeds um and then after that it was sort of like okay i can continue to enjoy other enjoy other genres but but fantasy and sci-fi is really what's the most exciting thing for me to read and think about more often than not did, did you ever were you ever into video games is that part of your it's not part of my lexicon at all. I've never owned a video game console in my life. Um, I think when, when we first got a computer and, you know, maybe 11, 12, 13 years old or something, we had a few very basic like PC computer games. Um, there, I remember there was an American Girl computer game, but I don't know what you did. Like you like put on clothes and like put, it was sort of like, I don't know, a, a slightly more sophisticated, like, you know, Oregon Trail or something yeah. <laughs> um, and things like that like maybe a very whatever like basic speed racing game came with your computer mm -hmm. that sort of thing but it wasn't anything um, that I, I don't know I didn't have anything against them I don't think my parents really did either it was more just that wasn't where our interests lay and I was an only child and a girl and sort of like unless I'd really expressed an interest that just wasn't a thing that they decided to get for me um, so yeah, my exposure to video games is usually watching other people play them <laughs> at friends' houses in high school and college and stuff. Um, and I don't have any skills, so I've always been like, I'll, I'll watch you do that. And, um, you know, I don't, uh, you know, have the dexterity for it. So uh, I'm very interested though in the part of your podcast that's the video game ad adaptation part, because that, that side of it definitely does appeal to me. And I think if I realized there were narrative video games, um, that might have been a different story when I was younger. That might have piqued my interest a little bit more. Um, but, and now there's, you know, there's um, Lord of the Rings Online and all those sorts of things. But I sort of feel like I have so many obsessions and calls on my attention anyway. I'm a little bit reluctant to go down that road and <laughs> like there's just not enough hours in the day so I, that ship might have sailed but um but yeah I'm kind of interested in like the adaptation part of it that that side is definitely intriguing well yeah well as you were talking the reason I thought of it was because you mentioned you know some of the, the stuff that you liked as a kid but also this connection to um the inklings you know and their sort of they focus on studying the things that they loved as kids in a different way as they get older. And that's that's kind of how I feel about video games, like they're sort of the fairy tales and folklore of our time in some ways, and all of the kind of pop culture uh, stuff as well. Fan fantasy literature itself has sort of stepped into that role and, and become a thing that people, you know, study and 
get really interested in kind of digging into. And, uh, and so I, th I thought it was cool that you, um, you know, you, you feel that connection as well. And, um, and reading your paper about the, the darker perspective, that's sort of what you talk about uh, Rowling doing in her work, right, is, is sort of uh, showing us that we have the surface level story of, of the main characters and what they're doing at Hogwarts and this and that. But then, you know, that's happening because of some things that are in the background. And that as mm. we kind of read more into some of the events, and as she, I think, maybe as an author too, like figures out more what's going on with her story as she gets, you know, three books in, then it really becomes um, uh, more salient, all, all of that backstory. Uh, and um, yeah, that sense of depth, right, uh, that, that Tolkien talks about. So, um, and I saw that you actually started writing it because you were on a podcast uh, with um, Katie McDaniel, is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So that's cool. I, I love how podcasts are generative of, of ideas and things. So, yeah. So how did yeah, you get yeah. interested in that topic, the, the marauders and, and the sense of depth? Or... Um, well, yeah, it's a mix of things. Um, the marauders were definitely, if you, if you listen to that podcast of reading, writing, rolling, um, I think I suggested that podcast because <laughs> my life's mission is to make everything about the marauders and Harry Potter. Um, mm -hmm. That's sort of like, for some reason, that was the thing. Um, and if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear me describe that um, I didn't get Harry Potter. Definitely, it. it uh, I, I guess I would say went over my head, but I honestly just wasn't really engaging with it. Um, it didn't. Um, I think I had seen the first movie, and it was sort of fine. Um, didn't inspire me to run out and and buy the books. Um, and for some reason, like even though being kind of the right age for them and I had friends that read them, I didn't have any particularly um, zealous friends that convinced me to read them, which is a little strange in hindsight. Um, so I, um, it was in seeing the, on vacation and a beach house actually with some friends in high school that had the third film that had come out on DVD. And um, they were all Harry Potter fans. And they said, well, we're going to watch this. And we'll catch you up because I hadn't seen the second movie. And we'll explain to you. Because they kind of warned me, there's a lot left out of this adaptation yeah. from the book. So it's not really going to make much sense if you haven't read it. And um, it was just something about the combination of the Coron's film and how striking it was sort of as a film visually. Um, and then them kind of spoon feeding me the backstory of these kind of this older generation of characters completely swept me up and I kind of realized oh there's something much more complex going on here than my impression my wrong impression of what was going on um in the books and um and you kind of like that's no fault of the first two I think the the point is that you can't start there the story has to mature into that um, you can't sort of rush those things. Uh, it has to sort of develop naturally. And there's, I don't know if you find this, maybe not with a trilogy because the third is the last, but, but with longer series, I often find that the third of something is often the best hmm. one or the one that, if not the best at the end, for me, it's the one that kind of kicks things to like a greater um, level. You know, I think a lot of the time the first one is very introductory. The second one can sometimes either have a sophomore slump or it can feel as though they're trying to kind of repeat or recapture the magic of the first and there's an inevitable kind of disappointment there. Um, 
at least initially, even if it's more interesting in retrospect. Um, and then the, the third is always a zag. It's always like, well, we can't just repeat that. That's not going to work. We have to kind of change things up. And so suddenly a lot of the times I find that the third installment of something kind of intrigues me in a way that the, you know, if it hasn't up to that point, suddenly it does. Yeah. Um, so that was my experience with Harry Potter and, and that kind of, um, sucked me in. I was in, uh, I think my senior year of high school when that happened. So, um, read the, then that, that was the inspiration then to get into the books and, and kind of find out, okay, this is, um, indicating to me that rolling as an author might be up to something more than what I, my surface impression had sort of, you know, judged her for. Um, and, um, yeah, I forget the second part of your question, but that was sort of, oh, well, th so the impetus for the paper in particular was um, knowing Katie McDaniel, who runs the Reading, Writing, Rolling podcast, I had suggested, like, how how about an episode on the Marauders, and you can have me as a guest. <laughs> and um, and just in doing the prep for that, she she sends some questions ahead of time, like, you know, five or ten questions to kind of, you know, think about and have you know, and then the conversation flows, but at least you have some idea of what the topic might be. Yeah. Um, so just her questions about what do you think is the importance of this group of characters to the overall story got me thinking, what do I think is the importance of them to the story? And that kind of generated some ideas that we discussed on the podcast. And then um, I thought, okay, I can, I can expand on this at greater length. So that was sort of the basis for the idea of the paper. And at the time, Mythlore, um, the Journal of the Mythopaic Society, was, um, had a, a call for papers specifically on children's literature. So um, it seemed to fit that. And that's always nice because you set yourself a deadline when you submit for something. It makes it, you know, especially working full time, it makes sure it gets done if I commit myself to that. So that was how that happened. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think what you came up with is really interesting. Like you weave in um, material about sort of tragedy, uh, the the role of character and plot as a kind of structuring principle um, in the story. So it's not just like the connection to, to Tolkien and um, and that element of uh, creating the depth of, of a of imagined world, right? A secondary world. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it gave me a lot of, of food for thought and um, yeah, just congratulations on getting that published too. Like, oh, thank you. Cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's my that might be my first peer-reviewed paper. I've had a few things published in, um, you know, like book chapters that you know have gone through an editing process, but that was the first kind of. And Mythlore is sort of if you're interested in these sorts of things, that's like the big marquee, you know, inklings, um, you know, thing to kind of publish in. So that was a nice sort of benchmark to be able to hit. Um, and I haven't yet, uh, not yet, although I have something in the works, but I haven't yet written, published directly about Tolkien, but I'm working on, cause there's a lot of anxiety of influence there, but, um, I'm working on getting there of like, I, I, I inevitably I end up quoting or drawing from Tolkien and anything. So it's, I'm kind of slowly edging my way toward having enough confidence to, say something about him primarily, rather than using him to discuss other authors, other works. Well, I was curious, like, 
what sort of things did you discover as you were writing the paper? So, I mean, so the initial idea sort of came from the podcast and the questions and thinking that through a bit. Um, as you were actually writing, like you're sitting down and doing that process, um, what other sorts of avenues uh, surprised you or, or occurred to you that you hadn't thought about before? Um, yeah, I think maybe the big one was, um, and it was sort of like, I didn't necessarily go out um, looking for this, but kind of stumbled on, um, I have a habit of just going to book sales and buying as many books as I can, <laughs> like more than I can read. And um, stumbled on a book of essays about Shakespearean tragedy um, by um, a Shakespeare scholar named A.C. Bradley. And um, from one of his essays, um, I quote um, a fair amount kind of about, um, not kind of so much that, I mean, Shakespearean tragedy and classical tragedy can mean very specific things. Um, so I, my argument isn't that um, Rowling's tragic elements or Harry Potter's tragic elements conform entirely to classical notions of tragedy, because um, that can be very um, formulaic and not in a bad way, just that there are rules and about how they work. Um, but despite that, just that as I was reading um, this essay, I've started, you know, finding all these resonances that seem to be kind of in line with what I was thinking for this paper anyway. Um, and kind of wanting to say, um, you know, these things about how the tragic backstory of these characters works to add depth. Um, that's something that Tolkien, the impression of death comes from Tolkien's Monsters and the Critics essay about Beowulf. And um, among the things that he talks about um, is the, the background, which is, what is it, desperate, more desperate and darker and more pagan than the foreground. Um, and so it kind of seems like, all right, I should address that and in some way is, you know, not just that there, that there is this huge backstory, but that there's something dark and tragic and desperate that contrasts with the foreground. And that seems consistent with the Marauders that um, they're like the trio, but not. They're kind of the trio gone wrong. It's, it's, it's all the friendship, it's all the fun and the loyalty and the jokes, but there's like a bad ending. And it's because of these kind of core character flaws, which as I was reading the AC Bradley element here, uh, uh, article, he was talking about the character elements that character and action are inseparable, that, you know, the, the tragic hero's decisions are issuing from character um, and vice versa, that you can't kind of separate the two. His, his tragic flaw um, is, is sort of synonymous with, with the action. And that, so it seemed to just kind of um, accidentally or, or not kind of fit in line with what I was already thinking. So it was kind of nice to stumble into um, somebody I wasn't familiar with previously whose um, work seemed to kind of be uh, supporting some of the ideas that I had. Yeah, well, so uh, you kind of analyze like the different members of the, of the four marauders uh, with respect to their sort of driving, you know, character trait uh, and, and what leads to their, their particular varieties of downfall. Um, and it's interesting to me that um, they are sort of this bizarro version of the three heroes in mm. the present time, right? Of, of Harry and Hermione and Ron. Um, and the fourth, who's my favorite character in the series, is Neville, in some ways. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. A good version of Peter Pettigrew or something like that, right? Right, and I know that's heretical for a lot of people, but I think that's there. I mean, it's there in the text that, that 
Harry, when he doesn't know what Peter's like, assumes that he must look like Neville. <laughs> like that, that he kind of projects this kind of what he, his image of Neville as this soft, sweet, bumbling fourth member who is kind of part of the group, kind of not. Um, and, I, and I think he makes a lot of assumptions about Peter, you know, kind of drawn on, you know, based on his experiences with Neville. Um, but yeah, like that, I love the bizarro term, um, you know, Peter is a bizarro Neville. He's, he's Neville who can't stand up to anybody. Um, which for all his timidity, something that Neville can consistently do. He can, can, he stands up for his friends and at the end can stand up to the Dark Lord and Peter's capable of neither of those things. Yeah. Um, so it kind of, it, it does like occur to me. Oh, and then I found, I think I have that in a, a footnote. I, I found that, you know, some essay on Pottermore Rowling says that she dislikes the number four. Um, so it kind of made me wonder like, you know, maybe Peter should have, not been part of the group. There's some, you know, I think some of us can relate to that of when you grow up either maybe with siblings or with friends um, who are um, overachievers. Um, sometimes you need some separation from that in order to grow, <laughs> you know, not that you can't be friends with them, but um, I think I remember uh, hearing about that, that um, in kindergarten or something, my mom the teacher said, um, I'm going to move Catherine's chair across the room because she probably shouldn't sit next to her best friend, who's one of these people that, you know, went on to graduate from MIT or something. Yeah. Like, not that I wasn't, you know, a good enough person or student in my own right, but it just wasn't doing me any favors as a kind of, to sit next to this stronger personality who, you know, and, and I think that's kind of, you know, clearly the Marauders, um, certainly James and Sirius, and I think Remus to some extent too, were these kind of outstanding, they were the trio of their day. Um, and uh, it's sort of Neville's, or uh, Peter's bad luck that he kind of ends up in a dorm room with them. Um, so <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's just interesting kind of contrasts and inversions. And um, I mean, that's something with the tragic element too, that I think I've heard, um, other people write and speak about is that uh, with tragedy often it's not even just that the, the point isn't that you make the wrong choice it's that you make the wrong choice for the situation um, so one example is that um, if Hamlet and Othello were flipped things might have worked out okay because Hamlet needs to act and his flaw is that he is too reluctant he's too in his head Othello needs to hold off. Um, and you know, the, the tragedy of him is that he goes too far and acts too rashly. Um, I'm getting excited for Hamilton coming out. And it's the exact same thing of, you know, Hamilton, you know, Hamilton is so aggressive and, you know, verbose and all these things. And he just needs to shut up and, you know, Byrne needs to come out and make a decision and commit to something. And then in the end, they do the opposite. And, Hamilton gets killed. It's like, so it's that, it's not that one of them is better or worse. It's just that they're making the wrong choice for their circumstances. And I think that's kind of the case with the Marauders um, that like, I think we love that Sirius can question himself and second guess and that he's very intellectual and analytical. And that's what allows him to escape his upbringing is that he 
doesn't just swallow the Kool-Aid of the Black family. He um, is able to question, see outside his prejudice, his bias of his upbringing, and, and um, you know, have empathy for other people. But then, of course, that's what gets him into trouble is they're in the war, they don't know, there's a spy, they don't know who it is. And he starts second guessing and questioning and suspects the wrong person and bulldozes down the wrong path because of that. Um, and each of them, I think, makes similar mistakes of, it, it, it's not a, a right or a wrong decision divorced from context, but in the context of their situation, they kind of, uh, they all make the wrong choice and it kind of leads to a disastrous end, so. I was curious, you know, as you're talking about the sort of the groups of three and four, um, just to shift gears a bit now and in, in turn to Pullman's work, right, which came out, you know, slightly before the first Harry Potter books and things. Mm -hmm. uh, he really sort of focuses in on the dyad or the, the two yeah. characters, right? And that's like the essential point of his story is to sort of retell the uh, the Garden of Eden uh, myth or, or, or story where you have an Adam and, an, an Adam and an Eve, right? So mm -hmm. that's that's why, I mean, he's got that um, very rich backstory that he's drawing on sort of as an illusion or as a, a retelling. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about that uh, in terms of what you mentioned about like the pagan being an aspect of this darkness, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's something kind of weird going on um, when, you, when you sort of have a, a retelling which uh, draws as its backstory on something that is explicitly, you know, Christian. Um, hmm. and I don't know, uh, you know, Rowling's story can be interpreted that way pretty easily, right? It's also being a, essentially a Christ story uh, mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, but yeah, so maybe just to, to break this down and, and start just like, how did you get um, exposed to the, the Pullman stories? Um, have you read them? Are, are you a fan, not a fan? And how do they compare to, to Rowling's stories in some general ways, maybe? Yeah, um, so I think I read them in high school um, before I read Harry Potter, actually. Um, so I had been, um, kind of had my mind blown open by Tolkien by that point. And, and sort of the switch had flipped to like, okay, like now I'm interested in fantasy. That's what I'm sort of seeking out. And um, so um, don't remember exactly how I had heard of them. Um, so, I mean, this was sort of early internet or at least early internet in my household. Um, so I don't remember if I read about them or somebody recommended them. Um, I had definitely the sense that this was sort of the self, similar to rolling, there was kind of an air of danger about them. Like these are, um, you know, I, I had enough of a um, conservative upbringing that there was something slightly um, taboo about them. I wasn't Expressly forbidden from reading either Potter or his Dark Materials, but but I remember a feeling of like going to the library to get his Dark Materials and like okay, like this is I'm gonna like psych myself out. <laughs> like I don't know what I thought was gonna happen, um, but I had to kind of like gear myself out for that, especially like being um, a big Lewis and Tolkien fan and um, you know just kind of like being aware that Pullman was um, explicitly positioning himself as um, an anti-Lewis. Not, not that, I don't know that he would use those words, but um, that was the way that sort of the critics in the pop culture sort of saw him. Um, and so I don't know if I'd read any of Pullman's 
quotes about those stories or had, knew enough about it to agree or disagree with his take. Um, but just a sense of like, this is not a Christian work. This is not coming, this is somebody who's not coming um, with a particularly Christian worldview. Um, so, um, uh, I, so I read them in, and I think by then I, I had convinced myself that like Potter was just kind of fluff. Like I, like I said, until I saw, until I had that kind of prejudice knocked over, um, I didn't, it wasn't something I seemed interested in. Whereas like I, I did have the sense that Pullman's books might be a little more, um, I don't know, literary or ambitious or there was probably some snobbery there of like, oh, this is like the serious yes. fantasy work. Um, this isn't really for kids, even though it's written for your, you know, for middle grade or, or YA, um, that he's up to something a little more interesting or ambitious or something. Um, so I definitely read them in high school. Um, I remember reading them on the bus, which means it was before senior year because I wasn't driving. Um, so, and I had mixed feelings and I think I still have mixed feelings. Um, I think I've, um, my appreciation, you know, certainly from an intellectual point of view of his craft has grown a lot. Um, I think I was, I was still very new to the whole kind of conversation that was happening. So, that, so probably there was some initial just defensiveness of um, anytime he was sort of zagging away from the inklings. Um, I probably had some resistance to that of, you know, no, they, they understand these things and you don't, and you think you know better and, you know, you don't. Um, so, you know, so he, his kind of antagonisms provoked me a little bit. Um, but like, not so much that I didn't um, enjoy the books or appreciate them. Um, and there were certain things that definitely stayed with me, especially from the first book. Um, you know, the, the, some of the, you know, the world building and the invention and um, just the poetry of that first book is, um, you know, there's moments in the later ones, but the, he really hit on something special. Um, and like, even after um, years of not reading them, I, you know, remembered specific moments like the, um, the kind of little reference to somebody whose demon becomes a dolphin and that, you know, he has to, he has to live on the boat now <laughs> because is it like something about that is like, man, that's a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so like particular, you know, ways that um, passages or scenes or characters made me feel definitely stuck with me. Um, and um, yeah, the, the whole idea of North and, oh. um, and just, I mean, the, the demon is, is one of the great, fantasy inventions ever. Um, and, you know, I don't know anybody who disputes that, regardless of what you think about Pullman and, you know, his opinions about things. So um, that was sort of my feeling. So, I, you know, happy to have read them, was definitely impressed and um, moved by certain parts of it, but kind of, um, it didn't from, you know, it, it didn't kind of grab hold of me in a in a more obsessive way, the same way that some of these other books had done. Um, and um, went years without rereading them. I think I, I saw the movie when it came out. Um, and then um, we were, uh, I was with Chris Swank actually in um, the UK. We went on vacation to Oxford to see the Tolkien exhibit. 
And um, I think the first book of Dust had just come out, um, maybe in paperback or something. And um, and she's, a, she's if you haven't talked to her yet, you definitely should. She's a big um, Pullman reader. And um, so she was encouraging me to read um, La Belle Sauvage. Um, so um, so I, I did, I read that. And then I went back um, over the last like year or two and, or, you know, last year mostly, and um, reread the trilogy because it had been such a long time. Um, and then, um, and the companion books as well. And then um, uh, just read The Secret Commonwealth um, shortly after it came out. So I'm sort of caught up again. Um, so having reread them now and being a little older, I think, and less defensive, um, I'm definitely uh, a bit more, I think, a bit more open-minded and appreciative of the things that he does, even if there are, his opinions about Tolkien <laughs> are what they are, but that doesn't necessarily, um, you know, I'm, I'm less easily provoked, I guess, than when I was, uh, read them for the first time when I was younger. Yeah, I mean, he's a polemical you know, guy, I think he's very yeah, rude yeah. also about the kinds of things he says to sort of position himself. Although maybe, you know, when you actually look at the books, there isn't that much, and there are moments, of course, but there isn't that much that's deep in them that is really against Lewis and Tolkien, I, I think. But, but yeah, uh, I, I think. Yeah, he seems to, I think you've, you've maybe said this and, and other people have written about this, that there are just times where he just doesn't seem to really know I mean, this sounds pretentious. Like I know better than Pullman. I don't know what he knows. I don't really like. You're getting like a snippet of a quote in a New York Times article. Like you know, um, his opinions are probably much more thought out than that is suggesting. But the impression is very is often that he doesn't seem to really know what he's talking about. <laughs> he says things that are just silly. Um, yeah, I guess less about less about Lewis, although I mean, I disagree with him on Lewis, but you know, so there was one I was to prepare for today. I was reading some of his interviews because I'm like, I, I better not just have a straw man, um, better <laughs> kind of know what he actually said. Um, and this one um, quote, if I can find it, um, where he says he dislikes Narnia because so he dislikes the Narnia books because of the solution Lewis offers. Um, is there a God with the great questions of life? What's the purpose of life? And he, but he engages with it deeply, unlike Tolkien, who doesn't touch it at all. And he says, the Lord of the Rings is essentially trivial. Narnia is essentially serious, though I don't like the answer that Lewis comes up with. Um, if, I was, if I was doing it at all, I was arguing with Narnia. Tolkien is not worth arguing with. And I, I thought, I think I feel the same way about Pullman's opinions of them, where he's engaged with Lewis thoughtfully. I disagree with his conclusion sometimes, but I can see that he's engaged with it. I can see how he got there. Um, whereas I think his opinions about Tolkien are kind of trivial. <laughs> like, it's hard to argue about them because they're so, um, from my perspective anyway, they're so... Um, surface level it just seems as though he you know either hasn't read it in a long time or hasn't read it very carefully yeah. um and that's not new to tolkien criticism i mean like most of the time the best tolkien criticisms come from people who like tolkien but also know how to grapple with him on certain things the so people who kind of self 
professedly don't like Tolkien seem to not really know how to, yeah, like, they don't seem to know how to articulate that or to know what it is that's bothering them. So they kind of seize on things that are, um, I don't know, factually incorrect or just seem like you're missing a very obvious examples that are counter to the thing that you're proposing. Um, so I, that just seems like a thing with Tolkien, that his thing about if the Lord of the Rings is one of those things, if you like it, you do. If you don't, then you do. Like, it's like, like, you know, there's something that rubs people the wrong way. Um, to the extent that they don't really even know what that is that bothers them about it or how to kind of seize on the thing that bothers them about it. So it's kind of hard to argue with Pullman because I'm not really sure what I'm arguing against. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just um, want to just tell him to read again and, and, yeah. World. yeah, yeah, or come back with some examples. Like, you know, if, if you say there's not anything of this, then so then you sort of want to say, well, what about these five things or these 10 examples? And then let's talk about them specifically. Or, um, yeah, it just seems like I, I can think of so many counterpoints to, and, and his, his criticisms are, are vague enough that sometimes I'm not even sure what he's pointing to. Um, like when he says, like, he had another quote about, like, uh, it's, he built a marvelous vehicle, but he doesn't go anywhere in it. I'm like, I get the point about the marvelous vehicle of the world building and the language and like, okay, yes, like he did build this impressive sort of structure to hang everything on. But I'm not really sure how to argue the point that Tolkien didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, other than to say, like you said, read it again. <laughs> Um, so yeah, whereas I find like with Lewis, like it's, it's more often, okay, we want to have the debate about Susan or like, there's more something specific that we can actually like have an argument about. Um, so he seems like have a, to have weirdly more respect for Lewis mm -hmm. than he does for Tolkien, even though he's sort of known as being this vehement kind of anti-Lewis in the, in the term of you know, the press and everything. Exactly, exactly. And I'm sure it has helped him sell many books uh, and gain. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, and we can't underestimate that piece of it of like, just it, it helps to kind of position himself, um, you know, in opposition to something to kind of clarify what he does and doesn't intend to do with his story. Um, I think, I mean, uh, I think rolling is an interesting example here too, um, where she's you know clearly in this lineage uh, of of fantasy authors. Um, her stories sort of do a different thing though, right? They're also in this other sort of parallel lineage of of like the the school story, right? The sure. boarding school story, um, and she sort of blends some elements from just all over the place, really, just like a hodgepodge of of fantastic names and allusions and yeah. things. Um, and very playful. It, it's it's weird. That kind of makes me feel like in that way, Rowling is more like Lewis and Pullman's yeah. more like Tolkien. <laughs> like in terms of like the high fantasy, low fantasy divide and the kind of schoolboy aspect of it versus, um, you know, his dark materials. It, it has the portal element. It has, you know, young girl leaves her home and, and goes to a land which is more fantastical than what, 
she's left, but also like her own world is pretty fantastical anyway. So it's, it sort of straddles that line. Whereas, yeah, I think Harry Potter seems more in the Narnia vein of these are ordinary school children as we know them who then encounter a world. But the the other aspect, this is something I wanted to ask you about too, is um, with that sort of impression of depth, one element of that is like the text itself, right? It has like come from this place, uh, mm. which is somehow other and uh, accessible only through the stories, uh, which are sort of dimly told within it, right? And it preserves this other world. The, the, only of, the only one of these authors who really goes to any trouble, and he goes to great trouble, I guess, is Tolkien, right? To explain like yeah. where his text comes from, uh, yeah. per se. The others are, are told in this, you know, again, sort of very... Um, esteemed uh, third-person omniscient narration mode, mm -hmm. which um, to a greater or lesser extent, they, they might approximate to a particular character's perspective at times, but ultimately they're sort of surveying and giving us this world uh, without really apologizing for where it came from, right? Who right. they are, like what they're up to. Right. Right? Um, so I, I find that kind of interesting too. Um, and I, I sometimes wonder about that with, with Pullman's books, there's almost like a hint, right? Like th this stuff has like come through one of these uh, windows, right? Like uh, mm. little scraps of paper that he found in a, uh, I don't know, like a postcard, you know, in some of those companion books, the little books, the red book and the blue book, he, he right. sort of waves, waves his hands at these things a little bit. Um, but I always sort of felt like Rowling really had uh, a great opportunity to, um, to do something cool like that. You know, like what is, the relationship between this magical world and and this world where I'm reading this book, you know, and she has, but only through like the kind of fan outreach yeah. that she's very skilled at, right? But not sort of within the the original series, at least. Um, but just I, I wonder sure. what you think about those kind of textual questions, I guess. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's interesting. That I've definitely um, you know heard heard that before of like there's a, there's some of, of a missed opportunity in in Harry Potter to kind of layer in those um that kind of textual history to and that's something i think i tried to acknowledge up front in the paper that i wrote is that um that's one of the main ways that tolkien achieves the impression of depth and that's definitely not something that rolling even attempts to do um there's no sense of who wrote this and um, when and why and, you know, I mean, Tolkien l layers in, um, you know, very uh, clearly in, in his um, appendices and his prologue to the Lord of the Rings that there's, um, that this has been passed down, it's been transcribed and um, edited, um, that, in, and it cobbled together from multiple points of view, um, that's something um, Corey Olson is, is going through in his, um, very painstaking exploring the Lord of the Rings um, is at any given time, like who's the author of this sentence? Mm -hmm. You know, like, is, is this a Sam sentence or a Bilbo sentence or a Frodo sentence or Findegill, the, you know, the King's scribe or whatever, like, and, and the crazy thing is that you can actually like talk yourself into believing that stuff. Like it, there's so much depth to it that you can at times feel that Tolkien was thinking about that sort of thing. Um, and there's times where we know he was because he references it in, in like I said, in his prologue and appendices, um, even the kind of the runes around the jacket of the Hobbit that are written in 
ancient runes that this text came to us and was written by Bilbo the Hobbit, all this kind of stuff, like to people who can't even read the thing, he's subliminally telling them this is a written tale compiled, you know, and translated and handed down to us. Um, and then, you know, you get into the Silmarillion with its whole like pseudo elvish perspective of how much bias is implicit in this, you know, is, is the picture we're getting of the dwarves entirely fair, um, things like that. Like he just thought about everything at such depth. And I think Rowling thinks it, you know, in, in her, in the Potter books anyway, she certainly seems to be thinking of things at great depth. They're just different kinds of things than Tolkien did, I think. Um, so like I kind of concluded, okay, she doesn't at all engage with this idea of layers of text. Um, but what she does engage with, and I think in Prisoner of Azkaban does a lot is layers of sort of narrative um, of having competing and contradictory versions of things. Um, and like, so she kind of, I, I think in, in, you know, maybe in some ways in a, in a sort of lesser way, she kind of achieves some of what Tolkien does, but instead of layering textual history, it's sort of this oral narrative history of, you know, the, in, in the Shrieking Shack kind of climax of Prisoner of Azkaban, um, there's like five people talking at once telling the story of what happened, of what we've been trying to figure out, the the truth of this narrative of like the whole question of that book is what happened right. um, between these characters and what were their motivations and who did what and why and all these sorts of things. And then all of a sudden they converge on one room and for like three chapters do nothing but argue about what happened. Um, and even at the end, there's things aren't cleared up. You know, there's like, we get the big answers of, okay, it's, it's, you know, Peter is the, the betrayer. Um, but there's things like the Whomping Willow prank where it, it, we still don't know. And, and that's been a great source of like fan speculation is trying to like piece together what seems the most likely from the evidence that we have of did, you know, serious, you know, mean to kill Snape or not. Mm -hmm. um, did James, you know, why did he save Snape? Was it sort of to do the right thing or because he got cold feet or what, like, we still don't really have a definitive answer to that. Um, you know, you have at least four competing versions of the same thing. Um, so I think she kind of is just interested in different things than, than Tolkien. And yeah, I mean, her, her attempts to do it through Pottermore um, are, are, I don't know, there's interesting pieces to them, but are increasingly seeming a little clumsy. Um, you know, her, her kind of, the, the kind of ancillary material of Potter um, has, I guess, been a little bit of like a letdown. It just, the, the care that was put into the novels um, does not seem in evidence to me in, in uh, you know, The Cursed Child, which she didn't write anyway, you know, or, or Pottermore or, um, you know, or, or even the movies. Um, there's a, there's a lack of full, you know, kind of following a thought all the way to the end, following it to its natural conclusion. Um, so they're seeming kind of, um, a little more shallow, I think, than the books that, um, seem to have been put together with much greater 
care and attention to detail. So it's interesting to me, yeah, that she's so great at um, keeping the reader sort of in suspense and like wanting more. And then that she would just sort of like give us a bunch of stuff, almost like an encyclopedia, right? To to yeah. uh, um, to click on like little links to to get more of, about particular things. Um, I don't. I don't. Yeah, get but the... there's even like there's an there. I feel like there are even more interesting ways to do that. You know, there were there were talks. There was whole legal battles for years about Harry Potter encyclopedias and lexicons. Uh -huh. um, that. Um, she, you know, she sued people over her right to do this, to, yeah. to stop other people publishing like definitive, you know, guide to Harry Potter, you know. Um, and, but she doesn't seem to have really followed, because the idea is like, okay, so you've got something really kind of great for us waiting. Um, and then, you know, that's Pottermore, <laughs> like, which... I haven't even really gone on there lately. Isn't Pottermore sort of a thing of the past? It's now kind of morphed into this like Wizarding World website, which is more about like the brand and the IP and the Warner Brothers of it all than it is about what Pottermore, well, Pottermore was sort of originally like almost a video game. Yeah. Um, and then it became the home for all this lexicon encyclopedia material. And now that seems to have kind of gone by the wayside. And now it's like your corporate home for all things Harry <laughs> Potter that also includes this information she wrote some of which is more interesting than others you know as a Marauders fan it's it's fun to see the you know the the Remus Lupin essay which kind of gives his backstory but even there it's like I'd rather have a novel <laughs> you know um it's it's fine you know um and some of it is a little more cobbled together than others um so yeah, it's just, and then she kind of goes and contradicts it in the, in the films. You get um, McGonagall, who's not at all the right age for, um, for what she's supposed to be, even, you know, in, according to the books and even the, the Pottermore essay, um, which give her, you know, date, her birth dates and all her information and biographical information. And there she is. Um, adult McGonagall teaching in the 1930s yeah. in uh, in the latest movie and it's sort of like that's I mean Rowling was always kind of poor with dates but that's a level of um, contradiction which is unusual for certainly for the books of you know like on a character level like that that she wouldn't have noticed something like that. It's just strange. I can't really figure, I, I don't know how to account for that. Yeah, I, I wonder about the, um, the the route that she's gone with some of the movies and stuff. Because uh, it does seem like she's in a way filling in some of that backstory that's hinted at. Um, mm -hmm. She sort of leaps over maybe even another generation really and, and gives us some stuff from you know, before that too. Um, yeah, yeah. So that we do kind of preserve this great kind of ideal uh, and, and these great sort of differing perspectives on, on the immediate uh, preceding generation. Um, so it's, it's interesting, but just trying to imagine like, you know, Tolkien um, in any way being involved with like making movies and stuff like, you know, <laughs> managing his like media yeah. empire, like it's just impossible. Yeah. To, uh, no, no, it's very hard to project Tolkien into any other time period than that he lived in. It's really, really hard to imagine how he would have functioned 
um, nowadays. Um, yeah, that's like, that's, uh, that kind of breaks my brain. Like, I don't even really know how to, you know, like, I, and I guess in that ways, he would probably more be more like Pullman, you know, I think he would be kind of crotchety and curmudgeon-y and he would kind of do his thing and not really, you know, I know Pullman's on, on Twitter and everything, but, um, but, you know, I don't know that he's like, hugely engaged with his brand and his fan base in that kind of way. You know, I think he's a writer who goes off and every so often he comes with a book and, you know, I think maybe that would have been um, more Tolkien's sort of tactic would have been to kind of say less um, kind of off the record about his, his, his work. And I mean, I don't know that that's true though, because he had, he gave lots of opinions in letters. Sure. Um, you know, when people asked him questions, he, he replied, um, you know, gave his thoughts on things and, and his opinions and we can, um, you know, we can take them for what they're worth. Um, that's a reminder. I think something, um, Ferlin Flieger talks about a lot with, you know, remembering to Tolkien's when you read Tolkien's letters, like, okay, remember he's writing to a specific audience, you know, he has a, whether it's a family friend or a neighbor, or if it's Christopher, or if it's um, a Catholic priest, like, or it's a publisher, like he dials things up and down depending on his audience. So you have to sift and be a little careful to always take him at his word. But I don't, it, it wasn't like he was like afraid to speak about his work. He wasn't reclusive about it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure how he would fit into the, the media landscape. I mean, certainly in the time he lived, the, the, the corporateness of it all, I'm sure would have made him uncomfortable as it made Christopher, you know, that was anathema to him. So that's well, understandable. It's interesting. Like, I mean, he did sort of have these other books that he was continuously writing and rewriting and never really, you know, finished. I'm curious what you think about uh, Pullman's new books, the, the Belle Sauvage, uh, the Secret Commonwealth, um, and how they do and do not sort of uh, connect in with questions that you might have had lingering or things you weren't satisfied with in the, the original series. Yeah, um, I think I, I liked La Belle Sauvage a lot better. Um, and some of that, I'm not sure how much of it is the book itself and how much of it is, is just taste. Um, when I kind of realized that was going to be all the like fairy other world stuff, I was like, this is my jam. <laughs> so I'm so into that. And, um, and I think he did a really good job with it. Um, there was some really evocative stuff as they're kind of going down the river and, and, you know, all these weird, creepy, um, in some ways, the secret Commonwealth as a title kind of fits the first, you know, La Belle Sauvage a little better. Um, which is kind of funny and that surprised me and, and frankly disappointed me a little bit because I saw the name the Secret Commonwealth and I'm like, this is amazing. He's like hit on a whole like fairy vein and I'm so excited for it. And then you get more like um, geopolitical religious intrigue in the second book, which is not my favorite, <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> like, I don't know. And again, I don't know whether that's just because he's less skilled at it or because I'm not interested and maybe that's not what I, um, just like I, I more responded to the golden compass more so than, um, later in the series where same thing, like it starts with, um, more the kind of 
Northwestern Europe folklore elements. And then it gets a little more um, uh, biblical and grand and, um, you know, political, I guess, as it goes on. And, um, and it just isn't, it doesn't work as well for me. And I'm not quite sure why he did that again. Because <laughs> my understanding is that, you can correct me, but even with fans, the amber spyglass is seen as kind of less successful. So I'm kind of interested in the fact that he kind of seems to have gone back to that well. Um, and I guess just more generally, I, the only thing that um, I feel a little bummed about is the same as with Rowling with, with her um, uh, Fantastic Beasts films is I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed to the extent at which these books are so closely connected to the plot of the original thing. I kind of would have liked, would have liked a new story set in the world, something that isn't, you know, so the fact that we're kind of going back to even Lyra or Dumbledore or the same characters we know, um, just personally, I was maybe expecting or hoping for something that explored a new narrative. Um, so there are times where both of those franchises feel like a little bit more of the same. Like, okay, didn't we already have this battle? Didn't we kind of, we already fought the Magisterium. We already um, dealt with the rise of wizard fascism. Like, I feel like there, may, there might be new threats or new plot lines that, that we might want to explore. Not that they're not exploring anything new, but it seems like they're kind of treading on similar ground still. Yeah. Yeah, no. But I, I don't know, maybe that's hypocritical because Tolkien rewrote the same stories over and over again and he had successive dark lords and so I I need to think a little more about why why it's bugging me with them in a way that it doesn't with him necessarily. Well, I mean, I think that to the extent that they are political, that might be a a, a piece of it, right? That Rowling has this uh, kind of um uh, sublimated politics that she's working on um, and, sure. and Pullman is pretty explicit about like what he's up against and uh, and what he's for right and um, the names that he gives them are a bit misleading for people who might you know disagree with you know p positing the church as an evil force in the world or you know, things like that but yeah no but I think you, you, your point is well taken like even fans of the series even people who like the kinds of stories he's telling and even like the slant that he's telling them from uh, find in general by and large that uh, he has a bit of a, a falling off, you know, in uh, as his stories get grander and more uh, sort of table pounding with like what he's mm. up to. Um, that that's exactly the thing that he uh, dislikes in Lewis, you know, avowedly right. likes that Lewis tells us what to think uh, through the end of his story. Well, Pullman, you know, very powerfully does too. So yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a kind of blind spot that uh, is pretty evident, I think, to readers that maybe the author is is just unable to see for whatever. But I think you know, right, that's right, and that's and and I think to a certain extent, fair enough, because as you said, um, he doesn't necessarily not respect Lewis as a as a writer. He he disagrees vehemently with his conclusions. Yeah. So I think we can take him at his word that he likes that kind of writing. He likes. Um, didactic writing that um, it, he, he might disagree with um, Lewis's worldview, um, what he concludes about these things, but clearly he's, he's found something, somebody worthy of argument. Um, so I think like, it, it, I think then that's just odd when you read the golden compass and you, and you have 
less of that and more of the Tolkien-esque, um, I guess, subtlety. And it's sort of like, but wait, you're really good at that. <laughs> you should have kept, you should have maybe kept following that, that train of thought a little bit. Um, that's where um, uh, it's, it's, it's just hard to kind of understand um, where I frankly don't understand his resistances to Tolkien because um, it just doesn't seem to make sense with, with even Pullman's writing. Um, and, and I think he's, he's maybe better at it than he realizes. Um, so yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see where the, the third one goes, but um, it, yeah, it went in directions I didn't expect. And, and the first one was sort of bifurcated in a way that is kind of interesting. Like there's this sort of prequel story and then it, it now it goes to 10 years later and kind of ends sort of in the middle of, of a sentence almost. Yeah. Um, like it really didn't feel like a complete beginning, middle and end story. It felt like, you, you know, the second and third pieces of this trilogy are, are seem like they're going to be a whole. So it's, in that respect, it's a little hard to judge it because I don't feel like I know what he's up to yet. So I have to kind of reserve judgment for that. Well, uh, yeah, I'll be really interested to, to hear your thoughts and whenever this book, I mean, the third book in the original series took like years to come out after the first two. So hopefully he's more, yeah. uh, more on top of things this time around. But uh, <laughs> well, if you could just say maybe a little bit about what you're working on with your um, current sort of research into Tolkien and, and then we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, what, yeah. What? Um, so um, I, I, I think I'm allowed to talk about this. Um, there's a, a paper that um, uh, I wrote with um, Curtis Wyant, who's another Signum grad and volunteer. Um, when we worked together on projects before, um, we did a podcast um, called Cat and Kurt's TV Review, which is currently on hiatus, but we spent several years talking our way through um, the new series of Doctor Who and uh, the Whedon, um, Buffy, and Angel verses. Um, the, the idea being um, he had never seen Doctor Who and I had never seen Buffy. So it was an interesting way to go through and neither one of us had too much power. We kind of could alternate and one person can be the one who has um, information and foresight and spoilers and opinions and we, we've thought about it and know what we think and the other's kind of coming to it fresh and reacting sort of in real time and then it can flip and go back and forth. Um, so, um, you know, we, we, that went on because Buffy and Angel are so long. Um, that went on for a while, like we ran out of New Who and we had to do some Battlestar Galactica and um, a couple of other like short shows. But then when we um, got to the end of Angel and it, at a certain point, Buffy and Angel are running concurrently. So there was a, so we're alternating shows and then we're alternating Buffy and Angel as well. So so you get an episode of Buffy and an episode of Angel and it was like a very interesting, I don't think he had even watched it that way. Um, so it was an interesting way to go through it. And um, so we finished that and, and both have other things going on in day jobs and stuff. So kind of needed a little break and, and put that on hiatus. Um, and uh, we're kind of talking about, all right, what, what other projects could we do? And um, uh, there was a call for papers um, in the Journal of Tolkien Research for essays about Tolkien and Whedon. Um, so that seemed like, a, 
good opportunity because there were certain like themes as you know when you do one of these long form projects there's certain themes or motifs or phrases that come up again and again and you find yourself you have this shorthand of we can say um you know we you know you say a phrase and and we can apply it to a completely different work but every, you both of you kind of know what it means because you've spent so much time talking about it um and both being Tolkien fans, one of those was um, The Long Defeat. And um, it, with Angel in particular, we kept, especially towards the later seasons, we kept coming up with this idea of um, applying The Long Defeat to uh, Angel. So, um, so yeah, we decided to write that up as um, a paper. And so we've been, over the last few months, like working on revisions for that. It's kind of in the revision process, but it seems like we're in the final stages of that. That should be coming out, um, hopefully, in the, the next few months, I guess. Um, I think it was a little bit delayed by coronavirus, but um, in the near future. So, so yeah, so that's like um, one where we look at the theme of the long defeat from Tolkien um, and kind of explore it a little deeper. And um, other people have picked up on that as a theme before, but we discovered nobody had ever really written a paper just about that theme in the Lord of the Rings. Oh, they sort of reference it in passing regarding other things, but there, there hasn't been, not that our take is definitive, but there hasn't been a definitive take. So sort of half the paper looks at what did Tolkien mean by that? How does that theme present itself in the Lord of the Rings? And then taking that and applying it to Angel and seeing how it compares and contrasts. Because in some ways, it's very similar, and in some ways, it can be very different, you know, Tolkien's Catholic worldview versus um, Whedon coming from more of a agnostic or existentialist point of view. So even, but it's interesting that even when they don't necessarily share their conclusions about the destiny of the human soul, um, they still, like, have this idea of, you know, fighting the long defeat, fighting a battle, you know, you're going to lose and kind of what that does to your psyche. So it's, it's an interesting comparison. So, um, yeah, so that should hopefully be coming out, um, pretty soon. That's awesome. Well, that's, uh, something I'll look forward to. I, I don't know the angel Buffy stuff as well, but I mean, the long defeat is a concept that I'm pretty interested in. And I think it's yeah. just like, that's what makes for a good story in most cases, right? Yeah. <laughs> Having that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Tolkien. That's his um, his theory of northern courage. Like that was what appealed to him about uh, Norse mythology and sort of you know pagan uh, stories and everything. Is this idea? And as a you know as a Catholic and as a Christian, mm -hmm. there is something tragically beautiful about the people who fight on without assurance of hope or even you know the knowledge that that there is no hope in this situation. There might not be hope for you. Um, and that, you know, even if you win this battle or, or even win the war, that time and history are still going to keep going and thing, these things are going to keep coming up. It's not a battle that, that you're capable of winning. It's a really fascinating and kind of evocative theme in Tolkien. Yeah. Well, geez. Well, thanks so much. Um, again, like we should talk again sometime when, uh, when the third book is out and, and all, all this is uh, said and done. Um, but so take care and um, best of luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. My pleasure. See ya. Bye.